Who gets away with ignoring people? You can't ignore people if you're a director. You can dismiss people. Well, thank you for your suggestion. We're doing it this way. And you can do that in, uh, in a lot of positions. You can do that as a director of photography, as a wardrobe designer, anybody in charge. As an AD, you can do that. It's adorable that you think the DPs are in charge. Just adorable, picture boy. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic community. Tell people not to swear the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Community. I'm your host, Louis Normandon. With me, as always, the one, the only... Brian This is how I should be introduced every week, and I don't understand why we don't do that, why we don't bring in a crowd uh, to cheer me each time I enter the room. I think you should just have that in life. I don't understand why we're not doing that. I just, I'd like for more resources to be committed to that, that, pro- that project. You're like, Lewis, you're a producer. Produce me a crowd. Yeah, I want a crowd, and they should cheer me wherever I go. Where's he going? He's going to get a drink. Yay! This week, we sit down with a second-generation set brand. It's hard for me to identify with that being a third-generation set brand. Oh, yeah. Apparently, the responsibilities are way different between that second and third generation. Absolutely. Uh, your memoirs are completely different. We talk about a gentleman who went to SVA, became a camera assistant, did some shows, started working for Gordon Willis. Gordon was working for Woody Allen. We talked a lot about uh, Gordon Willis and Willie Allen during this podcast. So if you're a big fan of the Woody Allen films of uh, days ago, maybe you want to sit back and relax because this one's a good one. We covered about 15 films after that, TV series. I just can't remember the guy's name that we interviewed. Darren? No. Dylan? No. Don? Oh, see, I was thinking dad. Got it. Okay. Dad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He did spawn you about 37 years ago, didn't he? Yeah. Proudest day of his life. I have him to blame for this? It's his fault, kids. If you don't like me on the show, one of the two people you can blame was interviewed this week on Cinematic Community. At the three-hour mark, we finally hit him with a chair (laughs) and said, get out of the studio. Stop talking. We understand you've done hundreds of movies and TV shows and commercials. We need no more stories out of you. We've gotten all the stories we need, and now I'll see you at Thanksgiving. Well, we hope you can appreciate some good stories, because you're about to hear a bunch of them. So sit back, kick back, Cinematic Community. So we're sitting down with one Douglas Chester Hart. (laughs) <laughs> With the roll of the eyes, this podcast begins. Douglas C. to some people, Doug Hart to some people, father to some people. You were a uh, a set brat. Tell us about that. Uh, I was. Um, my father, um, after being an Army engineer in World War II, uh, became first a uh, off-Broadway stagehand, and then when television commercials started... <laughs> Um, 
he started working as a, as a grip. You know, one of the very first companies that was dedicated to television commercials was called Transfilm. And my father was the staff carpenter and grip there. Uh, and I used to visit there as a kid down as, uh, as young as uh, six or seven, something like that. I remember going there when there were, you know, interesting things for kids. Uh, the one I really remember uh, was the Lionel train set. It was the largest Lionel train, electric train layout that I've ever seen, um, which, of course, they wouldn't let me touch. But uh, while I was there that day, lunchtime, they made a little, a little train set up for me in the carpenter shop to keep me, keep me going. But uh, yeah, I remember lots of, uh, lots of visits to Transfilm. Uh, dancing cigarette packs, you know, like the Rockettes, or the girls with, uh, you know, stockings and high heels, yeah. but inside a box to be a, a cigarettes, and dancing cigarette That's packages. Marketing. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of stuff like that that uh, I remember. And when I got bored, uh, my father would send me upstairs to the screening room where they had, they had a staff projectionist and they would, he would run cartoons for me. Felix the Cat, Betty Boop, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was fun. Um, my father tells a story of, uh, he gave me two pieces of wood and a nail and a hammer and set me down in the middle of the set studio floor and it took me all afternoon to nail the two pieces of wood together. And in that time, they had built an entire living room set around me. <laughs> <laughs> but they always knew where I was because I was tap, tap, tapping on this nail trying to drive it in. Sounds like things were a lot easier on the second generation set brat than the third generation set brat. Because <laughs> I recall many, many days of general camera, just sit over there and be quiet. And I had to bring a book. Oh, and... I never said that to you. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have done any good anyway. <laughs> so you get a little older, and you and your brother start working as yes. carpenter at some yeah, of both, both my brother, my younger brother, and I worked as grips with my father when he became a department head in construction. Uh, he did the pictures Serpico and uh, uh, The Wiz, the Michael Jackson uh, version of The Wiz. He was on those. And a lot of the early TV shows that uh, people of my generation would remember. He was on the Patty Duke show, the uh, Car 54, uh, The Defenders was the lawyer show at the time. And, uh, uh, East Side, West Side was the, was the law and order of its day, you know. This is uh, Circa Day around what time? 50s, 50s, 60s. Yeah. And he was on that soap opera forever. Yeah, well, he ended his career uh, on Edge of Night. He did like a last, the last five years of his career or something was building sets for Edge of Night soap opera. So all that hammering as a child came in useful when you were being hired as That's a group. So. Sure, sure. Um, it also helped me put myself through film school. Uh, I would take a day off now and then to work as a construction group with with my father and it would pay my pay my rent for a month you know just one day's work on a commercial would pay my rent for the month and food and grocery bills so <laughs> not a bad gig <laughs> yeah i went to the school of visual arts um which at the time was a three-year school with, with no degree uh, they had a certificate but not a degree uh and uh in deciding which film school to go to uh, I did research, you know, NYU, Columbia, SVA, and um, I would call them up and say, how many, how many students you got in uh, your freshman class? And they would tell me, and how, and how many 16-millimeter cameras have you got? And I, I 
that was my determining factor was the ratio to, from, of students to cameras, and SVA had the best ratio. <laughs> but also at SVA, um, uh, when I talked to my father about looking for a film school, he said, well, you got to try SVA because Dave Quaid teaches there. And Dave Quaid was the cinematographer from the place Transfilm that I used to visit that my father worked at. Um, and I always got along with Dave, and uh, you know, so I went and I, I sat in on one of Dave's cinematography classes, and between that and the the student to camera ratio, that, that made up my decision of where to go. Um, ironically, when I later wound up working with Gordon Willis, uh, Gordon Willis had started the business. His first camera job in New York was as Dave Quaid's first camera assistant. So yeah. <laughs> when Gordon and I finally had a chance to have a, a chat, uh, Gordon didn't realize that I was, you know, son of Bob Hart and uh, a student of Dave Quaid, but, you know, all those things come together, you know, and uh, uh, Gordon laughed and said, well, if, if you have assisted for Dave Quaid, you'll, you'll do fine with me, you know. That's, that was the only question he had to ask me, you know, who have you worked for? And as soon as I said Dave Quaid, it was, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be together for a while, and we were for 10 years. What was Dave Quaid like? Uh, an amazing uh, teacher and had great stories. He'd been a combat cameraman in World War II in Burma. Uh, you know, the... <laughs> Burma is probably the most difficult uh, campaign. You know, it was, uh, normally 120 degrees with malaria and all kind. You know, all the, in mud uphill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Japanese, you know, shooting at you. So uh, you know, he had a rifle over one shoulder and a, a bag with a bell and howl uh, wind up uh, IMO over the other shoulder, huh. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, he, he actually wrote a book, which we haven't been able to get published. I, I helped him out. I did some editing for it. And his whole uh, wartime experience as a combat cameraman had some, some amazing stories. You know. um, they would airdrop you know, ammunition and food and film for Dave. <laughs> and, uh, and then if, when they were able to fly out wounded guys, uh, soldiers, uh, he would throw a bag of film on on there to go back to uh, <laughs> headquarters, you know. But he'd be out for months at a time with uh, with Merrill's Marauders. That's that's the group he was with, uh, based in India. But most of the campaign was in Burma. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm still hoping to help his his daughter Diane uh, get this book published. It's uh, it's an amazing. It's amazing a, book. from what I'm hearing from all the authors I've been able to chat with so far. Or that we've been able to have on the guests on the show so far, that it's no easy task trying to get a book written. It's such a limited market. It's getting the book published that is, that's the real problem. I mean, Dave's book is one third uh, growing up in the Depression in New York and getting started in newsreels. It's one third the Burma, you know, World War II years, and one third his career after that in commercials and uh, early features. He did the, he was a DP on The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. He did Pretty Poison with Anthony Perkins. You know, a couple uh, a couple other pictures like that. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating book for a cameraman, but that's a limited market and publishers aren't really interested in doing it for such a small percentage of the population. So he's had trouble, he had trouble uh, finding a publisher and still hasn't, so. 
His, sure. his daughter and I may just publish it ourselves and just to get it out there. <laughs> Again, with We've technology, there's a market for that. Yeah. So there must have been a day when you decided you weren't going to stick in carpentry in the grip department and you were oh, going to move over to camera. What's, uh, what was that? Well, it became obvious very quickly that the people having the more fun and making more money were a little closer to the camera than I was, uh, unloading lumber trucks and sweeping out the carpenter shop. That didn't particularly interest me. Hell, I had to do that at home, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my father was, you know, all, all the home projects that he did. You know. um, Not surprisingly, he built most of his house uh, in Pigskill. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, totally unfinished second floor that he he totally did. He built the garage himself, practically. Uh, yeah, that's all true. And we, and we, my brother and I grew up with power tools and you know, all that stuff, so we were, we were ready for it when uh, it came time to work as a group. Did uh, being introduced a thousand times as Bob Hart's kid drive you cra- as crazy <laughs> as being introduced as Doug Hart's kid drove me crazy? Well, I actually saw it change, and I was always, oh yeah, you're Bob Hart's kid. And then at one point, Bob was working on a on a show and said, "Oh, you're you're Doug's dad." You know, so I got to see it. Yeah, I was about twenty before way. it happened the first time for me, and it was a wonderful moment. So you move over to the camera department. What were your yes. early goals? Did you want to shoot everything in sight? Did you? Oh yeah, I mean everybody. You know, you want to be a DP. Uh, I after visual arts, I started working as an assistant. On little non-union, uh, you know, cheapy uh, things. Uh, first feature was uh, a gem called um, Phantom of the Subways. It was a guy in a rubber monster suit who would grab people off the platform of the subways. A budget of about fifty bucks. You know. <laughs> but we shot thirty-five. You know, and so it was a great experience for me. I don't know if the picture was ever finished or if opened anywhere. I've never seen the. Never seen it, but I'm sure it's awful. But <laughs> but you meet people and you and you get used to the procedures and you uh, you know you learn as you go. And each each following job made it that much easier. You know, That's there's it. no such thing as a as a day at work where you're not going to learn stuff, and, and no such thing as a person that you meet on the job who isn't going to teach you something. It's right. just that's part of that's the way it happens. Nepotism in the film industry is often criticized, but if you think about it, who better to get into this crazy business than somebody who's grown up with it, you know, from when he was a little kid? Uh, and you know, that's, I couldn't that's agree really, more. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's part of the thing, and nepotism works in this in this particular industry, not so much in others. Uh, but it works better if really you stay is. in the same department, like we've yes. seen a lot of other families do. Yeah, we kept changing departments with each generation, so it's been less <laughs> it's been less helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would have had a lot of help as an AC, I'm sure. But as an AD, your name is practically worthless. <laughs> well, well, you're now on the West Coast. So that too, that doesn't that help. Too. <laughs> There's nothing good about Los Angeles. I keep telling Lewis that, and he doesn't believe me. Well, you know, it has been an interesting experience getting out to New York to do a bunch of podcasts and just like sitting down to see what, you know, what perspectives are and how things work out here and how the business is shaping up out here in comparison. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to be able to see how it works on both sides. There's several families of you know third generation uh, uh, people, especially in the Grip Electric, the Quinlans, and there's, there's a whole 
Can I say Irish mafia on, on here? But that's, you that's, can say whatever. Sure, that's like. the way it's uh, described for New Yorkers, anyway. Uh, and I actually know one family that's fourth generation that uh, I've worked with. Uh, the great grandson. Well, you know, Tom's son is grip. fourth generation too. Uh, that's true. And uh, uh, this uh, the Stetson family, which is the one I was talking about. Uh, great granddad uh, Stetson was D.W. Griffith's gaffer. So, oh, <laughs> so that back when they actually used gaffing poles. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, and either either grip or or electric, you know, in that family, all the brothers and the cousins, you know, everybody was, right. was there. Well, there's there's something to be said about getting into the business when you're young, you know, uh, because there's so much to learn. And you know, in order to be proficient at it um, in in a truly deep form, it takes a while. So if you can start early and you mm-hmm. can get in there and you can mm-hmm. have the you know the mindset of what it takes to be on a film set for twelve or fourteen hours a day or however long, and what each people what every person is doing, it oh, makes yeah. you very valuable down the line. Yeah, there's no no substitute for uh, you know set experience and just visiting a set and watching and being able you know ask questions of somebody. What do you think the percentage is of understanding set politics and the mindset of working, you know, a twelve-hour day? It could be six days a week. Very different, uh, you know. Is a third of it knowing your, you know, technician craft? A third of it knowing the set politics and the chain of command? A third of it knowing just the business and the the nomenclature that comes with it? The that's that's probably a good estimate. Um, you know, some people have more of the technical stuff and less of the political stuff, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, equal doses of, of each of those. I'm working on making you a grandfather so we can be a fourth-generation <laughs> film family. Don't worry. So you broke in in the early 70s, and you do a series of documentaries and do a lot of traveling in the early 70s, Yeah, after, after visual arts uh, and that, a couple of those cheapy uh, monster movies, uh, and also one film with uh, Sylvester Stallone in it before Rocky, uh, he was in a film. Uh, they kept changing the title. Uh, it was. Uh, it was finally. I saw it. You know, at three a.m. on you know some obscure cable channel. I was flipping channels and say, "Wait a minute! I worked on that." You know, <laughs> and there was a very young Stallone. Um, it was was it uh, staying alive? Wasn't that his first thing? No, the sequel this was, to. Uh, no, this was long before that. He had the script. He had a rough draft of the script of Rocky which he used to carry around. Shopped around for a long time. And, you know, he let everybody in our crew read it. You know, and I made a few suggestions, which <laughs> which I don't remember, and I don't remember, I don't know if they Take full credit for Rocky, them. go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, no, that was interesting. And to see, you know, a couple of years later, there it is, you know, out on... Uh, and win Best Picture of the Year. Oscars, yeah, it was uh, quite something. Um, but uh, in addition, I fell into... Uh, uh, a long group of, uh, of documentary shoots. Um, in fact, I, I probably have more uh, uh, frequent flyer miles than, uh, than most people. Uh, I, in my career, I've worked in 46 states and 35 foreign countries. Uh, you know, and almost all of that, well, but certainly the foreign stuff, almost all of the foreign travel was on documentary shoots. I did one picture in Trinidad, one in Bermuda, and one commercial in Egypt. But I think everything else in that world traveling uh, part of my career was on documentaries, uh, educational films and stuff like that. 
What kind of experiences did you pick up uh, from documentary filmmaking that you took with you over into narrative and single camera format? Uh, mostly it's, uh, you know, how to fix things, the survival. You know, <laughs> we, we, most, of, most of that kind of work was four people traveling maybe. You know, you have a DP director, a sound man, uh, uh, maybe a, uh, a spokesperson or a researcher or something like that. And me, I was everything else. I was the assistant, the grip, the teamster, the, the gaffer, the, <laughs> the field production manager is what, what I got billed, uh, got credit for on one series uh, because I was renting helicopters and paying the hotel bills. And, you know, that job was, was, was incredible. I was hired for three weeks because uh, one a guy had, uh, injured himself skiing, so I was hired as his replacement for for three weeks. Eight months later, I was still there, and we had hit you know <laughs> twenty five countries and thirty states in that time. It was, uh, well, we'll keep them on. Yeah, uh, that was fascinating. We got to uh, uh, Kenya and New Guinea, and uh, you know Japan and all kinds of places. Most of Western Europe. Uh, uh, that was that was quite something. Nor, uh, most of Scan the Scandinavian countries. Um, that was great. Um, is there anything that you pick up when you go to these different places? Like when, because obviously you start traveling, you see different perspectives. Are are there types of things or specific things that you carry with you when you're uh, when not a when you're going to these places, but b when you're coming home? Well, I mean, our group was so small, you know, just three or four people, and we didn't. We didn't have any extra crew anywhere, so we didn't really, you know, learn you know production techniques from other crews or other countries. It was we were shooting the American way that we were used to, you know, and just the, the geography changed. Well, I, I remember one day I couldn't. I woke up. And I said, I couldn't remember what country we were in. I had to look at the do not disturb sign on the door to see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's in Sherman. Oh, I remember now. <laughs> but it, it got pretty weird sometimes. <laughs> and you, you end up out there, you end up working long hours. I imagine that, you know, because you're, there's only four people to do it, that means you basically are working any time that you're not sleeping or eating. Well, but on the other hand, we were you know, daylight restricted. We didn't have lights and stuff with us. So when the sun goes down, we were done for the day. And, uh, <laughs> so there was a little bit of a reprieve. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. And we usually had to had to travel somewhere else. Yeah. So we'd, we'd get up in the morning, shoot whatever location we were at, and then had to get to the airport to fly somewhere else to go to the hotel and so we could get up the next morning. So the shooting days themselves were not uh, particularly long. It seems, seems like nowadays in documentary filmmaking, like uh, if you're that fourth person or if you're the, you know, the, the, the assistant forever, however many cameras there are, whatever you're shooting, you spend a lot of time getting the, getting the data. Yeah, making it wasn't sure too that bad because we didn't, we didn't shoot that much. You know? <laughs> Most of the stuff we were doing was either interviews, like with scientists or something like that, or was uh, field work, you know, herds of elephants and stuff like that, or, you know. We we went inside Tut's tomb, you know, all the all the good stuff was gone was in the uh, was in the Cairo museum, but we actually got went down the steps and into the tomb, which, which very few people can say that they've done. Uh, I was inside a volcano in New Guinea. And, uh, you know, so it's the experiences that you take stuff. home with you. Yeah, like getting to do yeah. something you you never would have thought of beforehand. Sure, sure. I didn't imagine myself in New York uh, two months ago, but here we are. <laughs> So in 1979, you worked on Kramer versus Kramer. Yes, I was. 
a little more than a day player. I was there. The, the little kid, uh, Justin, uh, could only work uh, like three or four hours a day. I, 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 well, also the law kept changing. But, uh, you know, because he was so young, he was restricted for hours. Uh, so every shot that he's in, we covered with as many cameras as we could get in the room. You know? <laughs> um, so I was B camera, you know, only on days when Justin was there. But <laughs> right. Um, so it was, uh, uh, well, it was it was a lot of fun Got to meet Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. And, you know, it's an amazing, uh, it's a it's a great film. And, uh, this might be a good place to say that if you, if you look on IMDb. Um, yeah, you find out the names of films that people work on, but there's no way to differentiate day playing with having done the entire picture, you know? So it's ironic you picked that one out. That, I, you know, I maybe worked uh, 25 days on Kramer versus Kramer, and I couldn't possibly, uh, you know, claim to be, you know, the first camera assistant on that. But let's talk about seven films where you were the A camera first from the first second to the last second. All right, we can do that. <laughs> uh, Manhattan, Stardust Memories. Uh, see, already we've got a problem. Well, what's the matter now? Manhattan, I was just a day player, and it was just one location in Central Park. Oh, you're already upsetting me. So Stardust <laughs> Memories, Midsummer Night, Sex Comedy, Zelig, Broadway Danny Rose, Purple Rose of Cairo, and Hannah and Her Sisters. Yeah. So six and a third films have some commonality. <laughs> you worked for the same DP for all of them and the same director no, one, for all of them. One, uh, Hannah and her sisters was a different DP. Oh, all right. Um, but yes, I worked with Gordon Willis on a total of 10 films in 10 years. Um, and five of those were Woody Allen films. Then uh, the sixth Woody Allen film was with a different DP because Gordon was in L.A. doing... Um, uh, John Travolta picture, uh, uh, Perfect. He was doing Perfect in L.A. when Woody had to start because of Michael Caine's uh, schedule. So Woody had to find a different DP. Gordon was still tied up doing Perfect. And they never worked again after that for some reason? No, they did not. It was, that was an interesting uh, fork in the road uh, in my career. Um, and everybody has those at some point. I had the, the situation of, do I stay with Woody Allen and, you know, a different DP, or do I stay with Gordon Willis? Uh, and because it, it certainly looked like they weren't going to work together again. But I, I had been asked by the, the Italian DP, Carlo De Palma, that uh, Woody uh, went to. Woody and Carlo did, uh, I don't know, five or six movies together. So I could have been on all, on all of those. And Carlo asked me to come with him. Uh, but, you know, I'd already spent six years with Gordon, I, and I didn't want to lose that uh, connection either. So you not. have to make a decision. And, it, uh, you know, according to my ex-wife number two, I made the wrong decision. But <laughs> I, uh, I chose to stay with Gordon. I did another four pictures with him. Um, um, but who knows? It could have all been different if I'd gone with Woody. Um, These are the forks that you're talking about, yeah, though. You know, yeah. you, you you need to make decisions, and you need to you know do your best to try and make the best decisions that you can. But yeah. sometimes it's it's just like you said. It, I mean, it's a crapshoot. Yep. yep. Well, and thanks for talking about the end of your time with them. Let's talk about the beginning <laughs> of your time. With well, Gordon. that's why they make editing uh, 
you know, scissors. We're not that stuff. good at editors. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta help us out here. So, how did you get on with Gordon? Yes, the first time with uh, Woody and Gordon was a total accident. Um, they were filming Manhattan, and they had a, this huge scene in Central Park at the, uh, uh, you know, the toy boat pond. Uh, thing or remote control control boats and sailboats and stuff and in that location with that they had a hundred of ex, hundreds of extras and fifty boats and it was you know, a huge a huge thing so they I think we had four or five cameras for that location and I came in with another operator they hired the operators and told the operators to bring there first so uh, the operator that uh, I was working with on on other stuff said, oh, we got some days on, uh, on Manhattan. Why don't you come with me on that? So that's how I got on, into the same zip code as, as Gordon and Woody. And uh, it lasted uh, quite a while after that. Uh, I should add that the scenes that we worked on at the boat pond are not in Manhattan. Uh, I asked Woody about that after we'd been working together for a while. What happened to that boat pond uh, gag that we did? Uh, and I said, oh, it was too funny. It didn't didn't go with the rest of the movie. You know, so, um, some Woody said, you know, he saves all that stuff. And he put it's called the black reel. He puts everything on the black reel that didn't make it into the movies. And he says, someday when I die, somebody will find that stuff in the vault and they'll they'll release it. You know. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, that may be the only time I get to see the the boat stunt that we did, which, which was a uh, Woody and his kid um, get a model sailboat, and they go down, and, and they're sailing it in the pond. And then uh, they cut to this uh, very Teutonic-looking guy with a, uh, a crew cut, and he's carrying a, a model U-boat about five feet long. And he, he's coming, and he puts the U-boat into the, into the boat pond. <laughs> And, <laughs> and you can see the little periscope coming up and, and, and lining up on Woody's boat, and then the, the U-boat fires a torpedo. So you see, you see the little trail of bubbles, you know? Yeah. And then Woody's, tor- Woody's sailboat has a little explosion, and it rolls over and sinks. That was the, the scene we were doing. And uh, I, it was hysterical just being there to, to see this. Um, and <laughs> but it's not in the movie, alas. They show him buying the sailboat, but you know the, that's that's the only sailboat thing in the whole thing. So that that was like five or six days filming this this thing to make get the stunt to work and all of, uh, and it's not in the movie. It did break the ice for me, and I, I wound up working with Gordon for the next ten years. So it, was, uh, it worked. As they say uh, about the cutting room floor, sometimes you have to kill your darlings. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, as you were saying, it set, set up a, a long running uh, a long running. Uh, yeah. Collaboration with you guys. Um, well, after after Manhattan, that was towards the end of the Manhattan shoot. Um, uh, Gordon had a a film called well, it was called Windows when we were working on it, but it was, it was released as Corky. No, sorry, the other way around. It was Corky when we were shooting, but it was released as Windows. And Gordon was the DP as well as the director of that. The only time he's done that. Uh, and he did not enjoy it. <laughs> Didn't want to be talking to actors as much as he had to as the director. Uh, but um, um, they were, it was towards the end of their shoot, and they were over schedule, uh, not over budget, 
Gordon was very careful to say we didn't go over budget. We were just over schedule. And he lost his original assistants. They had another job commitment. They had to leave. So I came in uh, as, a, as one of the replacements. And I did like the last three weeks of the film. Um, and uh, based mostly on that he had seen me, you know, on this Central Park location for Manhattan. Um, and after that one was over, uh, he says, uh, you may be getting a call from me in September. Um, and I said, okay. And then he explained, he said, it was, you know, Woody starts all of his films in... Uh, uh, in September, basically, and they become Woody Allen fall project. And then, in my case, it was '79. Uh, he does. He knows what the titles are going to be, but he doesn't. Nobody else does. You know, it just became WAFP '79, Woody Allen fall project, and that became Stardust Memories. Um, so I got this call, and uh, uh, from you know a PA or somebody in the company saying, uh, Gordon Willis wants to meet with you. Uh, come up to Woody's offices on 57th Street. And uh, uh, I said, sure, you know, absolutely. Uh, so I got up there, and, and Gordon said, you know, we worked together on, on both Manhattan and uh, Windows. We, haven't, we never really had a chance to talk about anything, so tell me what your background and your training is. And this is the episode where, I, you know, as soon as I mentioned Dave Quaid, he says he broke into a big smile and said, "Anybody can survive Dave Quaid is okay with me." And that's what really began it. And that, at that point, he realized that he knew my father, that my father had been to grip at this company, and he didn't specifically remember, you know, a seven-year-old kid being there. And, and I don't remember meeting him, but we must have because we were all in the same place at the same time. Uh, at Transfilm, a commercial company. What were some of the things that uh, Gordon was doing back in those times that were um, either breaking ground or, you know, like making uh, it so that he, I mean, because it's always been said that he's a, just been a master. What were the things that he was doing to stay ahead and be that master at that time? Well, this is going to disappoint a lot of people maybe. Gordon didn't go in for fancy lenses. He didn't go in for, uh, you know, fancy filters and uh, quirky stuff like that or some weird uh, lab process chemistry or whatever. He didn't. He shot very simply. You know, we used the standard set of Panavision lenses. Uh, um, you know, nothing particularly special about them. For filters, you know, the bare minimums. He'd use as few filters as possible. There are other DPs who stuff as many filters as they can into a matte box. Uh, Gordon, you know, we'd have NDs. We might have a polarizer, you know, whatever 85s we need. And Now, was this still the time that you might be stretching stockings across the back of the lenses, that kind of deal, or is <laughs> yeah, this different? Gordon never did that. Yeah. Gordon never... That was that was uh, you know at the, the right time the right time period right but it was mostly commercials and uh, not as many features did it but uh, Gordon liked the uh, Mitchell uh, series of diffusion filters which are A B C D instead of like Tiffins it's one two three four um, uh, so he had the the Mitchell series I didn't know Mitchell is this the same Mitchell yeah that was Mitchell Camera Co Company yeah okay yeah I didn't and, know they made uh, filters uh, that's the only filter they ever made you know. 
I guess it was before Tiffin, but they wanted some kind of diffusion. Gordon shot very simply, you know. He doesn't like handheld. We use Steadicam very rarely. Maybe there's a couple of shots in each of Woody's films that had a Steadicam in it. But he doesn't, he doesn't go for that, doesn't like handheld. Uh, you know, camera should be on wheels, you know, and should be anchored and not be, not have a floating uh, uh, horizon and all, and bumpy. He just hated that because it says it, it kicks you out of the movie, is the way he described it. That uh, all of a sudden, oh, there's a camera. There's another, there's a third guy in the room with a camera, you know, and it, it, you lose your connection with the actors, with the performance by, you know, oh, there's a, there's a guy with, uh, you know, palsy holding a camera. And it, <laughs> he hated that, you know, so very, very little uh, handheld, very little. Steady cam. When you need a steady cam, you really need a steady cam. But uh, you know, he just didn't you didn't use it just as they, so they could say yes, we have one. <laughs> right. It had to have a reason for it. And he shot very simply. The the magic is in the lighting and and in the camera moves and in the um, you know just the concept of the scene. How to uh, tell the story and. Both Gordon and Woody like the idea of long scenes. We do three, four, five, six-minute takes, uh, and then with no cuts. A one is the phrase they use in the, in the film business, meaning it's one shot without any intercuts. Um, and, uh, you know, one take per mag you know, makes it a little bit of a pain for the uh, assistance, but uh, I, I love that stuff. When you see a, a single shot that carries you through two pages of dialogue and, you know, you can't take your eyes off the screen. It's, it's just, that's where the magic is. Yeah, mm -hmm. I get that, and I like it. One of my favorite scenes ever is, in, is from uh, Stardust Memories. It starts the screen totally black except for a horizontal line, which is the, 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 the crack under a door. All right, and we can hear voices on the other side of the door. Uh, so we're inside Woody's apartment, although we don't know that yet because it's totally black except for the crack of light coming from the hallway. And then we see f feet, you know, or shadows of feet, and then and we hear the key in the di and the door opens, and there's Woody and Charlotte Rampling coming into the room. Um, and they disappear out, off in different directions, exiting the frame. So now we have only a... Uh, uh, you know, now the door is open, <laughs> and they start turning lights on in, in the various rooms. So they get the light coming from the left, and another light coming from the right, and, uh, and one of them will come back into frame and say a line of dialogue, and then leave again. So you, you got no actors in the frame, and then the other actor would come in from the other side and have a line of dialogue, and then he would leave. You yeah. know, and gra turning lights on, so they were gradually lighting the set as they're having the dialogue. <laughs> Uh, and often there's nobody in the frame, but we still hear the dialogue. Right. I just, it's, a, it's actually cut shorter than, we, we shot about a four-minute scene. I think it's about two and a half minutes on the screen, but it's, it's my favorite Gordon Willis shot because the shot builds itself, and the ca camera has a, a slight dolly in it. So is the brilliance of that Woody's blocking and writing or Gordon's camera work? That's hard to tell. Uh, or a combination of the two, which is uh, why they would I'm, do so I'm many sure films. It's, I'm sure it's a combination of the two. Uh, Woody and Gordon would ride in, you know, not a limo. I mean, people expect, you know, stars 
all had to ride. And we didn't have any limos on the set. It was a station wagon it was being <laughs> driven by a, by a teamster. So Woody and Gordon would ride together, and they would discuss all this stuff on the way to location. You know, and uh, they would... Uh, Oh, to be lay, in that car. lay out a shot. Yeah. Well, none of us were, so we don't know what those conversations were. Uh, you know, where the ideas come from. Is it Gordon? Uh, you know, saying, "Well, let's do this all in one shot," or was it Woody saying that? I, we don't know. So. Some of the best, uh, some of the best scenes uh, that I've seen get told in Wonders um, include who's a, who's a certain scenes from Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. Oh yeah, a lot of Wonders. Yeah with subtle camera movements that help yep. tell the story yep. as everybody's going through the motions. And it may not be exactly what you're saying where people enter and exit because I, I don't remember a lot of people exiting frames, right. but it's a great study for how to block long shots and tell you know tell a story creative with simple use of camera movement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, both, both Woody and Gordon like those long, long takes. And uh, it's even easier in digital because, you know, on recording onto a memory card or something, you don't have the time restriction that you do in, you know, with an 11-minute magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot more takes that can be had. Yeah. yeah. And a lot longer less, takes. Less, longer takes and less reloading. So. Yeah. What's the max nowadays? What's the longest take you could do with a red or something? Technically, you can go indefinitely by my count. You can plug a hard plug an Alexa in and go for an hour and a half? Well, on any camera that has more than one slot and allows you to pull the shot slot that's already shot, you can replace it so that when it switches over to the other slot, you when it's done with that slot, you can switch back to the original. Oh, so you can hot know, swap. I don't yeah. know how many people are tuning out of this podcast right now when I say these things. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's a cool, that's a cool no, note. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah. kidding. So Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy was up next? Uh... Yeah, that was, uh, we, we shot on the Rockefeller estate, uh, about 30 miles north of the city, um, in the, you know, the Tarrytown area, um, which was, which was interesting, being on the Rockefeller estate, it's totally, you know, unused land, it has been for 200 years or whatever, um, and we actually built a house, you know, our, our crew built a house that became the, you know, the Woody Allen house, and built a barn with it. And, uh, you know, uh, we shot so long that the leaves started changing colors. Uh, you know, summer has to end at some point, and <laughs> summer was ending, uh, and the leaves were turning, so they, they got a spray truck, uh, and we were spraying the trees with green paint uh, <laughs> in order we could keep shooting after, you know, most of, most of the leaves were yellow or orange by then. But we got our uh, spray truck and a, and a, you know, a fire hose. And <laughs> for, for all of our guys, ecologically concerned friends out there, it was probably a lead-free based Oh, yeah. Paint. No, that, it, was, it was a water color. That's why we had to keep doing it, because when it rained, you know, it would wash out. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was environmentally uh, the right stuff. Uh, and I actually had it, uh, got, got sprayed when the wind changed directions, and we had a mat box and a magazine that had, you know, green speckles on it <laughs> when the wind suddenly changed. But, uh, yeah, we had to do that. We, were, we ran, out of, ran out of summer. <laughs> Midsummer night, sex comedy, you can't shoot in the fall. It's got to be midsummer, so we had to. Um, but that was very nice. We, we avoided all the traffic. We were going out of the city when everybody else was coming into the city. So it was... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the glory that was, about living inside uh, the city. And it was great. 
Oh, and by the way, Woody is not the klutz that everybody thinks he is. Uh, Woody does magic tricks with coins and cards and stuff like that. And on Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, he was the second baseman in our softball game. So, <laughs> and did very well. Uh, so he's not the klutz. That, uh, that and clearly plays. has some dexterity because he plays the violin Absolutely. professionally or something, doesn't he? Uh, uh, what is it? Clarinet. A clarinet, right. Clarinet. Yeah, we used to, uh, we, would ha we knew that Monday night was going to be a short night. You know, we were going to, it was not going to be a long night, let's put it that way, because Woody would go to Elaine's to play with his band on, on Monday night, and then we would start late on Tuesday. So that, we knew that that was happening, you know. Uh, and That's every, power. Every Monday night, you know, he'd go play, um, and uh, we knew we were going get, to get a short night. Yeah. Um, I took my wife to, uh, to see uh, his band play one night since we had that time off. So we, we got a table in the, at Elaine's, and uh, Woody saw us, or saw, you know, saw me and recognized me, of course, and uh, he sent a bottle of wine over the table it was, <laughs> it was right, and came to sit with us on the, on the break. And all the other people in the, around us are looking at us, so who are these people that Woody Allen is sitting with? But uh, I thought that was very nice of him. A classy, uh, you're saying he's a classy, <laughs> decent guy? Absolutely, absolutely. Never loses his temper. He's never in a hurry, you know. And he has this style of shooting, which I've never seen anywhere before. Um, let's say on Stardust. Stardust was probably his longest shooting schedule, or at least of the ones that I worked on. Um, we would shoot the whole movie in, let's say, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, something like that. Then we'd shut down, return all the gear, uh, take the sets down, not throw away any of the pieces. They would just disassemble the sets and store them somewhere. Because Woody went into the editing room, and about two months later, we'd get a call, okay, we're going out for six more weeks of reshoots. So they, we assembled all the gear, yeah. you know, and, and loaded the trucks, and, and, you know, they put the sets together, and, and we reshot about half of what we did. But we could see the changes. Woody changes the dialogue, maybe he recasts an actor. Uh, maybe to change the location, uh, but it got better each time. You know, so the first time you shoot a, a film is another rough draft for Woody, and uh, that's the style he always he always uses. So you all right, you shoot in twelve weeks, break, you know, shoot six weeks, then you close it down. Everybody's looking for work, and, and uh, you know, and then we, okay, we're going out for four weeks, and then we're going out for two weeks. So each batch of reshoots gets shorter and shorter, and then the picture opens. Um, on Zelig, we reshot a scene uh, on Tuesday, and the picture opened on Friday, <laughs> which is, in the digital world, you can probably do that, but it, it was a little tougher in film. Uh, <laughs> sure. So the, the seven magic cities, or, or whatever they call it, you know, the seven, you know, New York, L.A., Chicago, uh, that opening night was, the prints were actually spliced. The stuff we shot on Tuesday, they didn't have time to... You know, put it in and make a new, uh, uh, you know, do negatives and all that stuff. Uh, so there was an assistant editor at each of the each of the theaters. Oh wow! Uh, in case one of the splices broke, he was, he was going to be re repaired. But they actually had glued splices uh, for the, for first couple of nights, and then by by Monday, you know, for Friday and Saturday and Sunday, by Monday they had real prints. But uh, that's crazy. <laughs> so and it was an assistant editor at each place with a splicer in case one of the one of the splices. Can broke. you imagine how nerve wracking that is for an EP? <laughs> well, 
I mean, oh, like, yeah. I Woody mean, ignores okay. picture lock is the uh, yeah. title yeah. of that chapter. Well, well the, even even Woody say we won't do this again. <laughs> it yeah. was okay. Uh, he yeah. overdid it. He, he understood that he overdid it that time. And as far as I know, it that never happened again. But uh, on Zelig, it, we even we called it the well the green room, even though it's a black and white movie, but. The walls were actually painted green of the, of the psychiatrist's office with Woody and Mia Farrow. Uh, and uh, that set of the green room, we figured out, had been built in nine different studios. You know, for nine times we went back to reshoot something, but the studio wasn't available, so we had to go somewhere else. You know, it started at uh, Filmways on 127th Street, and then it was in Phoenix, and then it was in, you know, it, uh, and Fox, and, you know, it, it had been in every studio in in Manhattan and Queens. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, no, it's a great movie. And ironically, Gordon got nominated for a cinematography Oscar for for Zelig. He was not nominated for the Godfather. The Godfather. Yeah, it was embarrassing. But uh, and and criminally, Gordon, Gordon even said it. Uh, you know, I you know they picked this picture. This is the picture that we first of all we only shot half a movie. The rest is stock footage. But then this is the. Film that we tried to make it look like old newsreel, so it had it, we printed in scratches and and uh, you know we made it deliberately bumpy, you know, to make it look like old newsreel film. And he would stand behind the operator with his fingers on the the shutter adjustment on a Panavision camera, and he made it you know a little darker, a little lighter, a little, you know. At a, not with a pace to it, but irregularly sure. to make it look like it was an old newsreel that you know uh, film. And we uh, they hired the um, film restorer at the Museum of Modern Art. I've forgotten what his name is, but they hired the guy who restores old films. And he was working with uh, Woody and Gordon to mess up our new film to make it look like old film. Right. So it would it would intercut with the the stock footage that that they had found. Uh, so a very very interesting film to work on because they they would have they had an upright moviola on the set all the time and they would look at. Um, which is an old, a flatbed editing yeah, system. No, upright, uh, upright, upright editing, editing system. There yeah, we go. Even before flatbeds. Uh, and they would look at it. Or uh, uh, some of the stuff came on, on Betacam was out at that point, as I recall. So they would look at it on, on, on uh, uh, no, Betamax. They would look e at either tapes or on the upright moviola, which Woody preferred. <laughs> they would look at stuff, and Gordon would figure out. We had three different black and white stocks, so he would try to, let's see, is that... 4x or double x you know and he, he would try and match you know the grain quality and contrast for for each of the uh stock footage shots that we were trying to match uh and then he would look at lighting direction and stuff like that so we could rebuild a set and light it the same way not perfect but for newsreels it didn't you know short scenes mostly but uh he duplicated you know that even people on the on the crew looking at dailies or looking at the at the finished film I should say wait a minute did we shoot that or is that stock footage and then then you'd see something that's oh oh no that's the real woody so that's something we shot you know to match uh, we put hitler uh, put woody into the hitler uh, rally uh, background we put him into the vatican building you know dressed up as a priest you know, <laughs> uh, all these places that we put Woody, you know, to intercut with uh, the stock footage. Um, 
uh, Woody's in a shot with uh, Babe Ruth. Uh, you know, Woody's on deck as Babe Ruth hits a home run. Uh, you know, it was difficult even for the people who were there to tell in the final film. Wait a minute, you know, is that? Oh no, we did that one. Oh no, wait a minute, no, that's stock footage. You know, it was it was hard because we Gordon duplicated it so well. It's amazing. Maybe it's the idea that. I mean, and you, you both have good points. Like, this is the movie that won won the Oscar for cinematography, but maybe it's that attention to those kinds of types of details, like the no, shutter. It didn't win. It was just nominated. Nominated. Um, but maybe it is. And he this, never did get. It would become one of those things of, how has this man not won an Academy Award yet? Well, yeah. Uh, and Gordon had an answer to that. But, yeah, it's it's ironic that, you know, everybody, and, well, not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people would say, how can they leave out Godfather or leave out Manhattan as a, as a cinematography Oscar? And uh, I asked Gordon about it. I said, what, what do you think is the, is the reason that you're not nominated more often and you don't have a whole fireplace mantle full of these uh, statues? And he, said, he thought about it for a while, and then he said, I don't wear white shoes. I don't wear gold chains. I don't play tennis, I don't play golf, and I hate Los Angeles. So that's why he didn't fit in and why he didn't get nominated, at least in his, you know, as his... uh, The way he would describe it. As his excuse, you know, or justification, whatever the term is. And uh, uh, he's allowed that? He did get his honorary career achievement Oscar. uh, not until 2009, I believe it was, and, you know, long after, you know, the Manhattans and the Godfathers, like 20, 20 years after, you know. So. Were there ever any uh, conflicts in this type of thing where he doesn't like Los Angeles, for instance, which means <laughs> that there would be people out there that might take offense to that? Was there ever any conflict that you can think of? Well, I mean, he didn't want to shoot there. He wanted to shoot in New York you're, or you're somewhere else. You were calling turning down gigs that— were outside I, New York, or I never, we never spoke about that. I will ask a quick question that is relevant, and I hope it doesn't backtrack us too much. But were there any other techniques like that shutter adjustment that he was using that were um, that surprised you, that you that stuck with you, that you say, "Oh, I had not thought of that before." Yeah, there's there's a there's a very good one which I'd never seen, but it makes so much sense, and it's so simple. Uh, when we were shooting Zelig, which was supposed to be taking place in the twenties. We had several locations where the buildings were old, but there were modern telephone poles and, you know, wires. Um, and short of, you know, getting the chainsaw out and uh, removing the telephone poles, how would we hide that, you know? And Gordon's solution was just so simple. He said, uh, lunchtime, go out and uh, go, go to a drugstore and get some Q-tips and some Vaseline. I said, okay. <laughs> he didn't tell me why he wanted those. I'm trying to imagine what kind of medical problem could he have that he needs Q-tips and Vaseline. But uh, so I, you know, well, lunchtime I got, I got the stuff. And uh, he would paint out the lines by, by the, the cables and the, and the telephone poles by just smearing it with uh, a little Vaseline. So on the filter, you know, he'd be looking through the camera it has to be a lock-off shot, obviously. You can't pan or tilt with it. But looking through the camera, he would reach around with the, with the Q-tip when it had a little Vaseline on it and just paint it on the filter, you know, paint out the lines. And just blur them enough so that in a quick shot, you know, the lines aren't there. 
And uh, same thing with, um, uh, yeah, no, it's still Zelig, but there's a scene where a, a young Woody is uh, is playing Superman. He's got a cape, and you know, he, and he puts his arms up, and then he flies out of frame going up. Well, he had wires on him. He had a harness, and Gordon just painted out the wires so that you don't see him. And <laughs> but we could we get rid of uh, you know those relay boxes that you, you sometimes find a big transformer boxes whatever they're called we can paint those that out you know uh, I've seen the same uh, similar techniques used with um, just like they would you know use a little oil off the side yeah. of your nose for yeah. a gate and a camera yeah. like you see the, some people doing the same thing just wipe a little oil yeah. and just well, one, smear out what you need one time we didn't have any Vaseline but I had chapstick so we just used chapstick on a Q-tip <laughs> I like it you got to clean the filters after and you don't do it directly on a lens, but uh, you know there's always a, a filter in there. Usually, our diffusion or just a, a clear glass, optical flat. Uh, but that was a trick, and it's so simple. You know, and took you know what a minute, <laughs> right? <laughs> to uh, you know, the art department would be working for a week to hide the you know stuff with tree branches or whatever. You know, and this was so simple. And that Gordon often looked for the simple way to do something. How can I do this, you know, without getting a lot of people involved and, you know, I think you hit paint it brushes and you I think you hit it earlier when you said um simplistic. Oh yeah. Uh, pragmatic would be the word that keeps coming to mind, but yet still stylized. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, his lighting you know, he did a lot with lighting that other DPs do with special effects or, or, you know, some weird lab process or pushing and pulling. We never did any of that pushing and pulling stuff. Um, he wanted, you know, from the lab, do it the same way every time. If I want a tinted a color, I'll do that in the lighting. Don't help me. <laughs> Just do it, you know. And we would give the lab the printer lights, you know, normally... DPs would say, well, you know, printed print, warm, uh, sunset, uh, you know, something, and leave it to the colorist to, you know, adjust the red, blue, and green content to get that effect. Uh, not Gordon. We would shoot tests with our, whatever stock we were going to be working with, you know, a black and white background with a with a usually a, an attractive young lady uh, in front, and so you have flesh tone, black and white. Uh, was often the uh, receptionist at General Camera, uh, <laughs> who'd probably been photographed more than most movie stars. <laughs> but um, you know, he would shoot that, and Gordon would look at it. And uh, fortunately, I got to tag along with him when he went to the screening room to look at the stuff, you know, for lens tests and filter tests and stuff. Uh, but he would look and say, "Well, this is." Uh, what are the printer lights on this one? I said, read it. I said, it's 32, uh, you know, 26, 18, whatever it was. Uh, and he would say, well, all right, make a note. Tell him to add two points of yellow. You know, uh, and so eventually he got a, a set of printer lights that he thought, okay, this is normal. So whatever it was, 26, 32, 21. So we would write that on all the camera reports and tell the lab, print at... You know, rather than they, they'll, the lab guy telling us what he right. printed at, we were telling the lab guy, print at these specific numbers. So, uh, you know, I kept, kept track of the numbers on, on the, the clipboard 10 thing that I, uh, 
use for the camera reports, and that would just get written at the bottom of the camera report instead of print for romantic sunset or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever would go on that long list of notes uh, you would put on, the, yeah. on, your, uh, uh, on your PO for the, for the lab that yeah. night, you know, just a long list of notes and, you know, print for this. And, and you know, at best, maybe you yeah. get some photos, <laughs> but that's these days. Back yeah. then, it's a print whole different at, story. You know, those three numbers. And Gordon wasn't the only guy to do this. I mean, others do it as well, but not, not as much. Uh, and Caleb Deschanel certainly does it the same way. I've worked on a couple of things with, with Caleb. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to shoot tests and, and see what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a, uh, Gordon could tell, Gordon worked in a lab. Uh, uh, he, he was an Air Force photo unit, uh, and including cinematography. Uh, so he had a lot of lab experience. And he could tell looking at dailies, uh, your. Uh, your developer is two degrees too hot, or, or you're uh, you're not replenishing your chemicals often enough. I can't see that. I, you know, I had no idea, uh, but he'd be able to spot that instantly, and yeah. he'd get on the phone and call. Hey, you know you're two degrees too hot, and they say, Yeah, we had an electrical problem. And, yeah, don't give me that crap. You know, just oh. do it the way you know. Do it the same way every time. Replenish your chemicals when you're supposed to. Keep the temperatures accurate. You know, don't help me or don't hurt me. Do the same thing every time, every day, every day. It's actually an inter- interesting transition from uh, a lab technician into a world class cinematographer. I mean. You don't hear about that. Usually, it comes from somewhere yeah. on an onset craft that a director of photography yeah. picks up the right. skills that they need to become that director of photography. Well, Gordon's dad was a makeup guy. I don't know. Did you know that? I did. <laughs> For the old Warner Brothers, and Gordy actually appears in a couple of old films as as a kid. I would love to find one of those old films, but I, I don't have any idea of the titles or anything else. It's not in IMDb. Uh, he was, you know, probably just an extra, you know, in the Young Rascals or, or Little Rascals, rather. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would love to find a, you know, an old film that he's in. But I, you know, very, very tough to do that. <laughs> so being in it at a young age, he had a chance to. Yeah, uh, he was. Go he was he a, a movie brat, also. You know, <laughs> although ironically, he. Didn't particularly like makeup people, even though that's what his father was. I often had a, had a, had trouble with the makeup department. You know, you know, get the guy with the putty knife out here. You know, <laughs> Gordon would say, you know, some kind, sometimes some nasty things, but uh, always very funny. You know, <laughs> to us around the camera, we hear, and he would, you know, just under his breath, you know, he mumble something or something. Hate this guy. I feel like it's an important thing to have a first assistant that you can kind of whisper things to, whatever yeah. those may be. Yeah. A trust, a layer of trust is involved in that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Any other stories for Broadway Danny Rose or Purple Rose of Cairo? Or? Broadway Danny Rose. Uh, yeah, Broadway Danny Rose. We shot in a um, when Woody and me are being chased by the by the bad guys. Um, they hide out. In a, it's actually a, an armory in Brooklyn where we shot this. Um, they hide out in a warehouse uh, where the Thanksgiving Day uh, floats are kept, right? So they, they rented a bunch of these floats and, and put them in the, uh, it was a, an empty uh, armory in Brooklyn. And, and the bad guys are chasing them and shooting at them. So we had gunshot effects and ricochets and stuff like that. And one of the ricochets um, 
in the script, you know, it hits a, uh, a helium tank and releases the helium. And they, they start talking like Mickey Mouse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the bad guys and Woody and Mia. And a lot of takes had to be done because everybody was cracking up. Uh, and, then, and they got used to it then. And, you know, the re repetitiveness of, of doing it that way, of having a little squeaky voice, uh, especially Mia. Mia sounded exactly like Minnie Mouse. You know, she's got a high voice to begin with, but the helium made it even, uh, even more. So they would, you know, take a breath of helium uh, and then do the dialogue, and then we would tail slate, you know, so, <laughs> so they didn't have to hold the helium in their lungs. And um, roll camera and no sound. After a couple of days of this, uh, I talked to the second assistant, and he talked to the prop guy. And the second assistant took a hit of helium, so he was doing the slate that way. And the first time he did it, everybody in the crew fell on the floor. It was, <laughs> it was hysterical. Uh, and Bob Payone, I know you're out there. Uh, Bob Payone was the second assistant. And it, it took some talking to get him to do it, to get him to agree to it. Well, it was my idea, and I, I talked him into it. And it was, uh, it was very funny. Even, even Woody laughed. I mean, that's, and that's what you want. You want to bring a little levity to the situation. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. Most of the time, it's long hours, and it's not easy. You've got to have a little uh, comedy to go yeah. with your day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was su such broad comedy. I, I, uh, petite little Mia Farrow uh, dressed up in, as an Italian, uh, uh, you know, hot mama, you know, <laughs> short skirt and cleavage and, uh, uh, you know, not the way you picture Mia Farrow, uh, but, uh, you, know, a weird, you know, the bobbed hair a hairstyle and all that stuff, and talking with an accent and a tough Italian girl and then mm -hmm. speaking with the, with the helium voice. It just, you know, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was great. We had a lot of fun. And like I said, Woody never was and never impatient, never angry, never lost his temper. I never saw Woody lose his temper in six pictures. Um, he would just say, okay, let me know when you're ready. And he'd go off to his camper, you know, if there were some technical problem or something. And, um, you know, and if I don't like it, we'll reshoot it. So it, <laughs> there was no pressure on him. And Woody was not going over budget or anything. He budgeted for that. You know, he budgeted 40 weeks of shooting, you know, which it's just not 40 consecutive weeks. It's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, 12 and 8 and 6 and 4 and 3 and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, but, and then you add them all up. But they still budgeted for that. And so I, I, we never went over budget as far as I know. It's a different approach to uh, filmmaking is yeah. Yeah. budgeting to not necessarily get it right the first time. Right. It was just another, uh, you know, it got out of hand sometimes. The time we did the green room, you know, three days before opening uh, on the film September, which is not one of the one that I worked on, but I certainly heard the stories. Uh, he recast something like six major actors after after making the whole movie, he did major re and huge recasting. They had to sh shoot practically everything that they they'd done as a reshoot. Uh, that's a little overboard, I think. <laughs> yeah. You cast it right the first time, you don't have to do that. But you know, we we could see it getting better. Oh, I wasn't on that shoot, but we we recast several actors. Um, um, Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, we shot two weeks with Michael Keaton in the role uh, and Woody decided he didn't like Michael Keaton's performance um, and he was 
we started shooting screen tests. We'd do a day's work with other, you know, shooting around that character for a full day's work. And then, uh, you know, the whole group of actors, uh, Jeff Daniels wind up, wound up getting the part. We, uh, uh, Eric Roberts, we shot a screen test with. So we'd do a whole day's work you know, for the film, and then do screen tests for that leading character. Right. <laughs> you know, after that. So most of the crew would go home and leave a couple of lights for us, and we'd do a little screen test. Uh, <laughs> and Jeff Daniels got the part and really launched his career, I think. Uh, he did such a great job as, the, you know, the, the movie character who, who steps off the screen and becomes a, you know, becomes a person outside the screen. And then... You have the actor there also, so it's, it's the actor and the character having a conversation. So yeah. that was the gimmick in, in uh, per, uh, yeah, Purple Rose. And, uh, uh, you know, so we, we had to do some, um, obviously they appear in the shot together, so we had to do some stuff with a double, you know, we get the over the double's shoulder, you know, onto Jeff Daniels, and then we you know, change the wardrobe and re rearrange them and do the other half of the conversation. So it was a little slower shooting that stuff where he's talking to himself. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, it's the classic cheat, though, in yeah. that situation yeah. is to shoot the shoulder enough to fit the audience. Uh, while, while we're talking about Zelig, um, there are several scenes that we recreated with the stock footage and then we would intercut our footage. And... I had several people come up to me and say, wow, you did a lot of blue screen work on that film. This was, blue screen was before green screen, which they usually use now. Wow, there's a lot of blue screen in that film. There's only three shots with blue screen in it. And people, no, you, you're kidding me. You know, and they would look at it again. I, you know, I counted at least 10. You know, no, there's only three blue screen shots in it. Uh, and then I would, tell them what they were but the, <laughs> and uh, well okay audience everybody go out and rent Zelig and, and take a look and see if you can figure out which are the blue screen shots there's only three in it uh, but everybody thought because uh, Gordon matched you know so closely right uh, that it was hard to tell but hmm. there are there are three uh, and we put the the most incredible one was they they put Woody into a Hitler rally um and we were actually shooting something else, uh, an unrelated scene, when uh, the assistant editor burst through the door and said, we found it, we found it, we found it, we sh we, you know, and ruined a, a take for us, you know, but uh, turned out to be okay because he had found uh, a shot with Hitler, you know, at, the, at a rally, and there's, a, there's a, a German soldier in uniform you know, a couple of rows back, that looks like Woody Allen. He had found this in, in stock footage. And, uh, of course, we all went to dailies that night to see. Um, the camera department had an open invitation to go see dailies anytime, plus the department heads and the other departments. We didn't get to do it very often because they, they would say, okay, that's, that's a wrap. And Woody and Gordon would get into the station wagon and be off. You know, we still had all the gear to put away but we all a lot of us made it that day to see this to see this shot and it you'd swear that that that's woody allen there it was it's an amazing uh, an amazing not, thing and not a blue screen and not a blue screen 
And we did, that's a complicated shot. Uh, we duplicated, you know, the chair position and perspective and the, you know, the grain structure and all, and the lighting, you know, in order to shoot a, a scene with Woody and Mia, you know, a, apparently watching a, a Hitler rally. Uh, uh, and that, that scene is amazing. You know, we all did the same thing with uh, Woody as a priest. We had a, we built a, a set uh, of you know the, the the balcony at the at the Vatican where the where the Pope comes out to do his uh, his thing, um, and we shot it from you know 100 yards away with a long lens and you know and we just inserted that piece into you know stock footage of the Pope in the 20s, <laughs> and uh, uh, and there's Woody and you, you cannot tell it's matched so well for you know grain structure and. Uh, Direction and, and how how scratched the negative was and how dusty, you know. <laughs> did you ever do any of that kind of uh, you know negative scratching? Any what, of those techniques? What we did, well, yeah, we actually took some film um, and put it on the floor and and walked on it to scratch it up, you know. Um, and um. we deliberately scratched uh, some film in the, in the camera um, in in the dark. We were just running running the film. And I actually took the, you know, took the the magazine cover off, and uh, and with a pin, I was I was scratching into the into the emulsion of the negative, and then they bypacked that with our negative. And we didn't actually damage our negative, right? But it was it was an, a second negative that was printed with it. So you have the the scratch negative and our good negative bypacked together and printed. And then uh, when you were walking on the film, this was already processed, developed. And yeah, it was just leader. And we wanted, we wanted the, you know, we, we'd even put some sand out on the floor. <laughs> and we kind of shuffle our, our feet. And, uh, you know, they hired this guy from the Museum of Modern Art who said, well, okay, you should have, you know, some scratches and you should have some, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, just scuff marks and stuff like that from the, being handled and the exposure change, which he did with the shutter. And they would just bypack it with, with you know, print through two negatives in order to combine the, the effect. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot and of fun. It's really cool. <laughs> we, we did have a problem with a camera jam. There's a scene with Mia Farrow is, uh, plays a psychiatrist, and she's taking notes of her sessions with Woody Allen, the patient. Um, and she, she had a white dress on. She's sitting and writing on a white paper in her notebook, um, and she's in a white, uh, she's sitting in a white chair and there's a white table in front of a dark stone wall, um, which was, uh, an existing building that we, they found to shoot at. Um, and we had a camera jam. So I, uh, you know, I took the mag off, I blew the torn sprockets and stuff like that out of the camera, cleaned it up and, and inched it by hand and it looked to me like it was it was okay. I was checking the shutter movement with the uh, the, uh, the mirror, you know, to, to make sure it was still in sync. It's something you check after a, a, a jam. Um, and it seemed okay to me. So we I just put another mag on, and we and we shot a couple more takes of the scene. Um, 
the next morning, we were in the studio, and we got this panic call from the lab uh, saying, oh, there's these, these streaks on the film, there's something wrong with your camera, this and that. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but we're probably going to reshoot it anyway. But uh, uh, so we, we stopped using that camera. We, we switched over to our other camera. Uh, fortunately, it was the it was the last scene we did where the camera jammed, and uh, we found out later that it it had pulled a, a perf. There's a timing belt in there, like there is in your car, and it got out of sync with the shutter. The the mirror and the pull down were were out of sync, so the the film started moving while the shutter was open, and we got that kind of streak. Um, and uh, so I said, well, all right, we'll look at it and see how bad it is. Maybe we can. Uh, well, maybe we'll reshoot it if we have to. You know, no big deal. So we went to screening room that night, and they put the scene up. And sure enough, from from the white table down, and from you know Mia's clothing down, uh, there are these streaks, which you know would indicate that the shutter was still uh, shutter was open while the film was was moving. Um, and would he love the effect? He said. This is great. This looks exactly like old newsreels that have been, you know, printed and printed and printed from dupes. And, you know, eventually you get some of that, those errors. Uh, I said, wow, you know, it's beautiful. We're going to leave it just the way it is. It's perfect. You know, it's better than something we, you know, would have done on purpose. You know, a good accident. And they even, for a few minutes, they said, maybe we should just leave that camera that way and, and use it a couple of more times. And Gordon said, nah, once is art. <laughs> Five or six times, it's not art anymore. It's, then it's you know it's <laughs> taking an easy way yeah, so out. We, we it's, got this it's only in that that one scene that it's there. But uh, so Hannah and her sisters would be the last film you'd work on in that set. Well, it was a Woody film. One of the was, first it was I not remembers. a Gordon film. Well, it was the last of the Woody yeah. set. Yeah, we had our you know that was a difficult shoot because they were really using Mia's apartment, Mia Farrow's apartment. Uh, as the location where this family lived. Uh, so it was, we couldn't take a wall out so that we could get the dolly in. You know, we couldn't do any of that stuff. We couldn't remove the ceiling for lighting. It was all uh, made, it, made it tough that we did a lot of shooting in that building. Um, and it was a little difficult. And Mia's kids were in the, were in the film as actors, and you know, Mia's real mother was there playing Mia's mother. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I remember being jealous that uh, Mia's kids got McDonald's while I ate with the crew. Because <laughs> we'd hang out the rest of the day. We were only separated during lunch. Right. <laughs> well, that was a, a totally different style. I was The DP was Carlo De Palma, an Italian DP, uh, who shot almost everything on a zoom lens, and he would often have little zoom moves in it. With Gordon, we never, ever used a zoom lens, or, you know, so rarely that... Uh, you know, well, you can't even the, talk about it. Did they have the um, the mechanics to smoothly do oh, yeah. zooms? Oh, sure. Yeah, the Panavision, you know, the motor, the motor mounted on the on the lens itself with the pistol control. I guess this is yeah. roughly 1985? Uh, 86, yeah. Is when it was released, perhaps. Yeah. But oh, either way, yeah. 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 Well, we had all that. Um, I mean, Gordon would do it so you, so that you would never see the zoom. He would, if if we needed it, it, it would be buried in a pan or buried in a in a tilt or something, so that you weren't aware of it zooming. Um, 
But Carlo would, almost every shot, had two or three zoom positions, you know, half dozen focus marks, and a couple of dolly positions. Um, it was a, you know, a different style of shooting than, uh, than with Gordon. And I got very good at doing zoom and focus together. <laughs> Once in a while, you, you just can't do it. You, you can't be looking at both at the same time. So I would turn the, turn the zoom over to the second assistant. But I would always keep the focus for myself you know, as the focus puller. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so we'd have the second on the other side of the camera. He would do the zoom you know, if we needed that. But most of the stuff I did, I did them both myself. That's definitely a common practice uh, yeah. is to pass that off to the second assistant yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, then again, there's you know also live operating, which is a whole different uh, beast. All you know, mm -hmm. all the same because the operators uh, for live broadcasts are generally. Pulling their own focus and doing their yeah, own zooms. Or and pedestal or whatever. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and for those who can't see us actually having this conversation, <laughs> I'm using a lot of hand movements. I'm easily excitable when we start talking about this stuff. So I, well, I apologize. We're all doing I, it. And since it's an audio recording, I don't want to say anything, so I just use the physical movements. <laughs> yeah, he's giving me, uh, you know, thinks I'll, I'll miss the words, or he's giving me a little, uh, he's playing charades over here to, I'm, I'm, to cue I'm, me for the word. I can't interrupt, I can't interrupt, and I, I want to have the conversation, you know, like in, in no, a I normal understand. conversation, I you know, understand. but it's just, uh, I, get, I get really excited. Uh, <laughs> well, you have to understand that I've told these stories many times, and with all the teaching that I do, in addition to the film work, uh, these stories have come up many times, and, and a lot of them are in my book, and it's, it's uh, so I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> I'll, I'll hit the right word eventually. All right, hold of the presses right there. This can't be a single three-hour episode. We have to break it into pieces. We're not going to do that to you. So this is the end of part one. Believe me, the old man will continue talking in part two. <laughs> so meanwhile, check out our site. You can check out our blog. You can get the whole rundown. Uh, you can see all of our photos. You can see all the supporting material that we use to populate the blog to get that information out there to you folks. We hope you appreciate it. If you can take the time to uh, let us know you care, www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. You can also email us at immunity at cinematiccommunitycast.com. Uh, you can check out the photos on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that fun stuff. We hope you enjoyed the show so far, and uh, we'll pick it up here next Tuesday. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon.